0: Awesome. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys today. Let's go, Ducks. I wanted to go to sleep at halftime when it was 31 to 3, and we were bringing the wrath of God down upon the evil Stanford Cardinal. They say the (laughs) kingdom of God is like a tree, and the birds of the air come and nest in it, and uh, those are the demons. And so I don't know what the spiritual connotation is. There is none. I just like college football, and I'm a Duck fan, like the Lord. So Excited to be with you guys today. Uh, we're continuing our series, God Has a Name, and we're talking about that God is more than his attributes. He's more than omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. If God had a baseball card, we'd be like, God, you know, he hit 500 last season, um, he hit 62 home runs. Sorry, Aaron Judge, you know, he, he, uh, he did that. But actually, God is more than his, his power, he's more than his, his transcendence. He is a person, he has a name. And his name, as we've been looking into over the past few weeks, represents his character, which is really more important than even his attributes, because how powerful God is matters. But who, what, what type of a character is behind and in that power is even more important for us. So we've been looking into this over the past few weeks just to kind of bring you up to speed. If you haven't been with us or even if you have, I know that there's a lot of week that happens in between Sundays. Come on, somebody. And uh, sometimes we need a little refresher. Number one, God is a person. He is not just transcendent. He is also eminent. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And God desires a relationship with us. And we're going to talk about why this is so meaningful even today. Uh, In our kind of advanced place in history, we're the inheritors of the Judeo-Christian worldview in the Western world. The idea of a personal God that wants a relationship with us, that cares about us, that loves us, is not really revolutionary. We're like, I know God. He's supposed to love me. That's what it said on the plaque in my grandma's bathroom. You know what I mean? That God is love. And so we kind of have this idea. But In the Bible, when this idea was presented, it was a a really revolutionary concept that God is not just above it all, but he's also here, and he's a person, and he wants a relationship with you and I. Number two, God is not abstract. He has a name, and his name is Yahweh. And what that name means is I am who I am. It means I will be who I will be. And what it's saying is God, as he reveals his character, we're going to talk about him revealing himself to Moses on a mountain thousands of years ago. The same God that reveals himself on a mountaintop in whatever, 4,000 B.C. or 1,400 B.C. when he reveals himself to Moses thereabouts a couple thousand years back is the same God that shows up and dies on a Roman cross in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And he's the same God today. And his character is consistent all throughout uh, all of, uh, of human history and all throughout eternity Uh, In ancient times, names meant more than they mean today. Today, we give people names because we found them in a book and we thought they sounded cute, right? Bethany did a great job talking about the meaning of names biblically was it represented character and destiny. And so God's name is more than just a, a way to differentiate him. It actually speaks to his character. We'll look into that more. And then the third idea that we've kind of unpacked is this, that Jesus is Yahweh. So as Yahweh is revealed in Exodus 34 and in the Old Testament, There's this kind of mistaken idea that when Jesus shows up on planet Earth 2,000 years ago, that he's sort of the advanced version of God. He's like God 2.0, kind of like getting a new iPhone. He's the upgraded version of God. And the Old Testament, God is kind of mean and maybe a little judgy, you know, has those 10 rules. And Jesus only has one, you know, the golden rule. And, And actually, that's a totally false idea that Jesus is Yahweh. And, and we're not going to lean into the full mystery of what that means, that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. I'm going to let Pastor Mark Harpan do that message next week. He's preaching on that. No, I'm just kidding. He's, <laughs> he's like, panicked. Um, but, uh, but, but Jesus, when he shows up, he is Yahweh. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. We, we learned in Exodus 34, we're going to go back through this today, but that Yahweh says, I am rachum vachanun, I am... Uh, I am uh, compassionate and gracious. That word "rahum" is like a mother's womb. God feels for you like a parent feels. Uh, that's his 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 love towards us. And then "chanun" uh, is the action verb. It's the that God acts upon that that graciousness towards us, that love and that compassion towards us. And we see in Matthew chapter nine when Jesus is on the scene that He also is moved in this same way. He's moved with compassion. Why? Because it is Yahweh showing up in the flesh. So. As we dive in today, we're looking at Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. This passage is rich. It's deep. It's actually the most quoted Bible verse or passage of Scripture, the most quoted Bible passage in the Bible by the Bible. So as the Holy Spirit's inspiring the biblical authors over thousands of years to write these 66 books, they continually come back again and again and again to this revelation of Yahweh because this is the only place in the Bible where God says, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. Have you ever been misrepresented or misunderstood by someone? Happens to me all the time. Anytime anyone thinks I'm wrong or did anything wrong, I was totally misrepresented. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. They don't understand. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But there have been times in my life where I've been misunderstood, and, and, and then I say, wait, the way you're thinking of me is not right. Let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you what, why I didn't, wouldn't say that. or what, That's not my character. And so in, in Exodus 34, when Yahweh speaks for himself, it's really important that we would perk our ears up and listen and say, you know, maybe the, the caricature of the Lord, maybe the caricature of God, Maybe this idea of like Zeus-type figure with a lightning bolt ready to bring down the fire upon me or whatever isn't accurate. Or maybe the Santa Claus God or whatever sort of conception we have of God, what we need to do is look back to what did he say about himself? And remember, he's consistent. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Who he says he is is who he is always and forever. And so in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, in the Bible, when you see this phrase in the Old Testament, the Lord, it's, it's Yahweh. This is the name of, of God. The compassionate and gracious God. Rachum vachanun. Slow to anger. Remember last week we talked about this? In Hebrew, it's a phrase. It's erech apayim, and it means long nostrils. And you're like, what the heck? You should have been at church last week. But what this means is when God wants to get angry, or when he feels anger, he takes a deep breath. He has a long nose. It's a long, deep breath. Like your mom says, when you're mad at your sister, count to 10, right? God is slow to anger. And then what we're going to focus on today, this is a beautiful attribute, a beautiful characteristic of of Yahweh, that he is abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, or as the scripture says, he lays the, the sins. Uh, the, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You're like, I want to know about that. That sounds scary. We'll talk about that next week, so you need to come back. But today we're going to talk about abounding in love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, the words for love and faithfulness are Hased and amet. hased and amet. Hased is this sweeping panoramic word, this big word that we, we actually don't have an equivalent for in the English language. Um, you know, in in our English language, we use the word love very uh, sort of broadly. So we say, I love my kids. I love my wife. I love steak, right? I love baseball. Like we use love and we just sort of use it as this blanket term. But biblically, love is a lot more nuanced. And this word uh, here for love, "hased." It can be translated in a bunch of different ways, but here are some just ways to give English kind of translation for it. Steadfast love, or we could say unfailing love, or probably the most accurate to the scope of the Bible of how this word is used is this phrase, covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty, and this is an interesting thing because covenant loyalty is not necessarily how we think about love in 2022. In fact, I would say we actually tend to think of love as kind of the exact opposite, which is how do I feel Whereas lo- loyalty, and specifically covenant loyalty, as we'll unpack today, means something very different than how you feel. It means actually doing something even in spite of how you feel. So God's type of love or the love that he's expressing here and who he is at his core, his character, is a little different than maybe it sounds just in English here. And so I want you to just take that word covenant and just open that little drawer in the back of your head and boop, pop it in there and we're going to get it later, okay? How many of you already forgot what I just said, right? You're thinking, man, is there a football game on right now? I'm hungry. Who's that over there? Look, a squirrel, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, chesed is actually emphasized, this word love, covenant loyalty, steadfast love, unfailing love, is emphasized twice in the passage here because the next line that says uh, maintaining love or uh, uh, enforcing love, continuing love to thousands is, is giving this same word. And in Hebrew, when they say something twice, they're, they're bolding it, they're putting it like, this is really who God is. And so when it says here, when Yahweh says, I am abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, that same love to thousands of generations, it's repeating it because he's saying, this is really who I am. If you really wanna get a picture of who I am, you need to think about this, that I'm overflowing, I'm abundant, it's spilling over. I don't, I don't know about you, but I have an Italian mama, she's Sicilian, and man, we have, like at Christmas, we, we go to town on food. And my mom will make enough food for like 50 to 100 people and there's 5 of us there at the table. And so that pasta dish, man, steaming pasta and then you get the garlic and the butter and the sauce and everything and man, second service is about food, isn't it in Jesus name? Uh it's spilling over and we're like, "Mom, you made way too much." And she's like, "I know, but I didn't want anyone to go hungry." It's like this is who she is. Her character is overflowing. It's abundant. It's spilling over the pasta and God is saying, my love, my covenant loyalty, my unfailing steadfast love, to really grasp who I am, you have to see this is like doubling over, it's spilling over in who I am. And then the second word here, faithfulness, is the word amet. Amet. And that word in Hebrew literally means truth or trustworthy. In the Bible, it's used to convey the idea that someone or something is completely trustworthy, completely credible, uh, it's actually connected to the word amen. So when we say amen, what we're saying is, yeah, that's true. Amen? Amen. 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 We're actually saying the same thing, that we agree with it. It's, it's, you can count on that. And so in the Bible, you typically will see this word amen translated as faithfulness or trustworthiness because Yahweh is somebody that can be counted on. And I think being counted on and being consistent in his faithfulness is an underappreciated attribute or characteristic of God. I mean, we live in a, in a world where everything is sort of untrustworthy. You know, I was reading on Twitter the other day and it was like, this big bank is potentially gonna fail and what's that gonna do to our credit system and all this stuff. And, and you think back to 2008 when we had the subprime morg- mortgage crisis and there was these massive banks and they used this term, too big to fail. And, and you're thinking like, if you're the bank, like we should be able to trust you. If you're the federal government, we should be able to trust you. If you're the pastor, we should be able to trust you. And yet, in life, what we find is all the institutions that we should be able to trust in oftentimes let us down. And yet, here's Yahweh. He says, "I am Amet. I am faithful. I am trustworthy. I'm consistent. And that's who I am, and that's who I always will be." And so, Hased and Amet they go together. Now, uh, in the book "God Has a Name" by John Mark Comer. Uh, we're referencing this content and bringing it from there. This is what he says in there. He says, Now when you put chesed and Amet together, it's incendiary. Abounding in love and faithfulness is what we call a hindiatus. Okay. Hindiatus means uh, it's this literary device where two nouns get smashed together to help define each other. And this is what he says. This is what it means. God's love is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is his love. Okay. So to understand God's love, you need to see it through the lens of covenant. You need to see it through the lens of faithfulness. You need to see it through the lens of loyalty, not just through the lens as a 2022 citizen of this modern world of, does God have nice feelings about me? Does God get butterflies in his stomach when I walk in the room, right? Maybe, but maybe not. So The thing is, yes, God does care for you and does have emotions for you and does love you in the sense that we tend to use this word love. Because if you remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago, rachum vachanun, again, that mother's womb, that compassion. God does love you in that way that we think about love. But this isn't just trying to emphasize that feeling of God's love. It's trying to now give us definition and to clarify what God's kind of love looks like And I think this is transformational. It has huge implications for us as citizens of this modern world because, again, as I I mentioned earlier, we tend to see love... As a very conditional uh, how i feel my emotions towards you uh, when the circumstances are the right way when my environment around me has made it conducive for me to love you then i express love to you when the loving feeling is gone the love disappears and what god says is his kind of love is actually based on this thing called covenant loyalty meaning he's gonna do his part no matter what and i think that's a really powerful thing and so We put these two things together. Uh, John Mark goes on. He says this pairing of hased and emet, love and faithfulness, is used all through the Bible. In the Psalms alone, the word hased is used 126 times. For example, in Psalm 89, the poet writes, I will sing to the Lord. This is Yahweh's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. This is just one sample out of hundreds not exaggerating. Yahweh's love and faithfulness are one of the major themes of the Bible and one of the main reasons, reasons for worship in Psalms. His covenant love, his faithfulness sparks poetry and music and awe and gratitude and prayer and hope. When you get that, what God's love looks like, it changes everything for you. It changes everything in your heart. It changes everything in the way you live your life. And ultimately, it leads us to a place of worship. Um, and it's a beautiful thing. But I think to really understand Hasid and Emmet, we have to talk about covenant. We have to go into kind of the geeky stuff. So would you give me 10 minutes to get kind of geeky and, and get into the Bible a little bit and break into some stuff? Is that okay? I'm going to do it anyways, but let's just jump in. Covenant is not a word that we use in common vernacular today. It's not really a part of our, our verbiage. Um, I remember when I was buying a, a condo uh, many years ago. I was buying a condo down in central point and i remember seeing in one of the documents it was called the covenants you know the ccrs or whatever the covenants and i was like oh covenant oh that's a cool word and i didn't read it and then later they were like us hundreds of thousands of dollars so then i was like that word meant something didn't it um in there but covenant you might hear that word and think oh it's like a contract or uh you know it's an agreement kind of two people come together and make a covenant well it's kind of like that but it's a little deeper than that. I I would, I think in our time today, probably the most, uh, accurate way to think about covenant is to think about marriage. Marriage is much more than a legal contract. Marriage is not just business. It's personal. Um, do you know why there's a huge industry for divorce? Because you're actually emotionally connected (laughs) And you're mad and you want your half and all that kind of stuff like it's not just oh we had a legal agreement and it didn't work out and they went their way i went my way no it's hot it's heated there's an entire industry of lawyers and people that deal with the fact that there was more to it than just a legal contract was there a legal part to it sure but it's deeper than that marriage is two people coming together standing before god and doing what the bible calls this hebrew word barit and it means a bond you know, in, old, in movies, you'll watch how they'll be like, okay, we're gonna swear an, an oath to each other and they always cut their hand. And Bethany and I always see that and we're like, why didn't they just like cut their forearm and like a little bit of blood? You know, they always cut right in the middle of their palm and then they'll do this thing, like slap their blood together and you're like, that is not hygienic. But anyways, <laughs> it's barit, it's like this bond and, it, and what they're saying is, you know, the, sometimes the, I've seen in, in, it acted out this way, like a covenant where they'll put their hands together and they'll wrap like, cloth. And I think in, in Jewish marriage ceremonies, they would do that. They would put their, not blood, but they'd put their hands together and they would wrap the, the, the linen uh, to show like you're tied together. So covenant is a personal promise or promises made between two parties, um, and it, but, it, but it's a bond. It's a personal thing. It's deeper than just a legal contract. And if you understand covenant, then you understand God takes it very seriously in scripture when he makes a promise because Yahweh is Abounding in this covenant love, in the covenant loyalty, when he makes a promise, when he bonds himself to you or to someone or to something or some promise, he doesn't just go, well, I don't feel it today, so I'm out. He stays with it. He's consistent. In Genesis 12, we see the story kind of unfolding about this guy who is a really big deal in the Bible, and I don't have time today to do it full justice, but we'll just kind of do some mountaintops of this story a man named Abram, he lives in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, somewhere what we now look at as Iraq or Iran. And Yahweh comes to him uh, and he says, Abram, he reveals himself to him somehow. We don't really know the mechanics from scripture. We just know God appears to him and says, I want you to leave your father and mother. I want you to leave and I want you to come to this other place. They go to a place called Haran. And then he finally brings them over to the land of Canaan, what we now know as modern Israel, Syria, that kind of region there. And so, Abram is given these promises by God. He says in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, and go to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. This is a covenant, okay? And we're gonna see it get even kind of added to as God and Abram, their relationship grows and this journey uh, goes on. But in this promise, in this covenant that God is making with Abram, something that is probably really easy to miss, I wanna point out, it's this word, bless. Okay, In, in English, especially if you grew up in church like me or if you've been in church at all, we love to say, I'm blessed. I'm too blessed to be stressed. And what we mean when we say blessed is somebody took me to lunch, you know, or or somebody gave me, you know, gave, gave me an honorarium when I went and spoke somewhere, like I'm blessed, or I got a good deal on my car, I'm blessed, right? Christians, we like to throw around the word blessed, right? And usually what it means is some small financial provision was made for us, whatever. And that is like such a small piece of what the blessing God is speaking to Abraham about here in this story, okay? To understand blessing, you have to put your yourself back a few thousand years to the ancient people and how they thought about blessing. And if you weren't here three weeks ago, I talked about the Elohim and there's this deeply spiritual world that they live in. And so we have to see how Yahweh is revealing himself to these people. So we understand the connotations and implications of everything. But the idea of blessing actually means that the deity that is blessing. Okay. So in this case, Yahweh is saying to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless everybody. The deity is saying to the person that's going to be blessed. You will benefit from me because of relationship with me. That's why it, there's that uh, Abra, uh, the ironic uh, blessing—not ironic, but ironic. It says, "May your face shine upon us." The idea of a face shining upon someone is that relationally you are with that person, you're for them, like you benefit because of relationship with them. We tend to think of blessings as the downstream. The, the, we think of blessings as like, oh, I got some money, or I got the job I wanted, or I prayed, and God healed my sickness. And that's awesome, those are blessings. But, the, but to understand what it means to be blessed, or to be blessed, it means that you actually have the favor of the deity. You have the favor, the relational presence of that entity with you, OK? Now, I know this is a little bit deep, but, but like, In my relationship with my wife, Bethany, there's a lot of benefits of being married to Bethany. She's an amazing person. Um, She's not just a pretty face, she's also brilliant. She's hilarious. You guys, if you haven't checked out her Instagram with meme Monday, I mean, she's bringing the fire every Monday and I'm required to watch it too, uh, every Monday with her and laugh together, I mean, I love it. It's like one of my best times of my week. Uh, There's so many benefits. She's an incredible cook. She's a great wife, great mother. I mean, it's awesome. Like when we sit down at the table and we're eating something delicious that she made, I'm like, man, I'm so blessed, right? But here's the deal, and here's what I want to point out. The real blessing of my wife and our relationship is not the benefits that come. It's the fact that we are in relationship and in life together, growing old together. The benefits are secondary to the relationship. Okay, are you still with me? So when Yahweh says, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your children, and I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you a privileged special relationship with me. But not only is that just for you and for your family, that is for everybody on earth, and I'm going to use your family to bring this relationship to everyone. I mean, that's a big deal, isn't it? Now, Abram is dealing with all of this in his real day-to-day life, and and as we get further on in the story, in Genesis 15, Abram actually questions Yahweh. Now, he's not questioning him in disbelief, because in Genesis 15, uh, Yahweh repeats these promises. He says, I'm going to give you a, a, a great family. I'm going to turn you into a great nation. You'll have descendants. You're going to have heirs. Uh, I'm going to give you this land, this land of Canaan. And, but, and, and it says, Abram believed God, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. So Abram is not, like, lacking faith. He actually has faith. He believes. But he says to Yahweh, but well, how are you going to do this? How is this going to happen? How am I going to, how, how is my little family, and at this point it's just him and his wife, he doesn't even have a single kid. And he doesn't have any land. He's a nomadic, you know, kind of a sheik of the burning sands, you know. He's Ahab the Arab, right? Sheik of the burning sands. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you that are a little older know who I'm singing. Yeah, it's a Ray Stevens song. And she was like, Ha ah. Okay, Anyways. Everybody under 40 is like, I'm under 40, but I have an old soul. So anyways, um, it's a Ray Stevens song. You have to look it up. Obscure references on Sunday. Abram doesn't have any land. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have what Yahweh is saying he's going to have. And so he says, Yahweh, how are you going to do this? Okay, so Genesis 15, we kind of step into this scenario. The Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. In other words, bring me a petting zoo. <laughs> so Abram presented all of these to him, and then, sorry kids, he killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. It says in verse 11, some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. I don't know why that's in the Bible, but it's there. It's a nice little detail. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them and in the end they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. We talked about this last week, that God is a wreck He's slow to anger, so he's letting people have their time to repent and turn their heart to him. It says in verse 17, After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates river. Okay. So it's a weird story. Like a lot of this is not on the surface accessible to us in 2022. John Mark says this in in the book. He says, have you ever read this story and thought to yourself, what the heck? Well, if so, don't feel bad. It's kind of bizarre, but it's a powerful moment because this is the point here. It's Yahweh's way of saying that even if Abraham and his children don't keep their end of the bargain, he'll still keep his promise. He'll rescue and save the world through this soon-to-be nation, no matter the cost. And if blood has to be spilled, it won't come from Abraham. It will come from Yahweh himself. He's willing to die and become like these animals just to keep this promise to bring the world back to life. Hopefully your mind is already jumping ahead to connect the dots to Jesus. We'll get there in a second, but I want you to see that this starts millennia before the cross, thousands of years before the cross. The rest of the Old Testament, really the, old, the, the, the entire Bible— is about Yahweh faithfully keeping his covenant with Abraham's family and Israel, which is Abraham's family, uh, failing miserably on her end. Okay, let me give you a little bit more detail. Bethany was uh, reminding me about some of this. There's a, um, uh, a custom that's being depicted here that, that, that the readers of this thousands of years ago would have been like, oh yeah, I know what's going on. They call it cutting covenant. So imagine two farmers are making an agreement and what they would do is they make covenant with each other is they 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 called it cutting covenant they would take an animal and they would cut it in half they put the two halves and then they would take another animal and they'd walk it through the two halves and it was to signify if you break your promise if you break your uh your covenant then this animal is going to be torn going to be ripped in half like something bad is going to happen there's blood when promises are broken This is why when I said that covenant, to understand it in our terms today, marriage is a really big deal. When you listen to the wedding vows, which usually people are so in love when they're making these vows, they don't think about what they're saying, but it sounds more like gladiators than than something romantic because they say to love, to have to hold, to honor, to respect, you know, to until death do us part. Death? I thought we were just here to eat wedding cake. You know, I thought we were just here to start this beautiful, romantic life together. And yet, at the very beginning of something beautiful comes something horrendously ugly. Why? Well, the scripture tells us later, divorce is like tearing garments. You see, the very fabric of love is that promises made and promises kept is what makes things work. And with God and his character and his integrity and his love, it is a violation in our, in our world when promises are made and, left and then broken and whether it's marriage, whether it's a business deal, whether it's friends that made a promise to each other, whatever it may be. And so these farmers would take these animals and they'd say, hey, if you break your part, like something has to die. And, and what's going on in this account with Abram and this vision that he's having is Yahweh is actually walking through in the form of this fire pot, smoking torch type vision thing that's going on, moving through these torn animals saying, if the promise is broken, I am the sacrifice. I will be torn. Now, those of you that know the story of the Bible, your mind, like he says, goes right to the story of Jesus. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus actually shows up and the scripture tells us he is the lamb of God. He is the sacrifice lamb. He shows up and he bears the weight and the burden of broken covenant. It doesn't just start in the New Testament. It starts here, thousands of years ago in this obscure custom, because God cares about promises made promises kept his character who he is who he always was who he is and who he always will be is covenant loyalty faithfulness and when you think about blessing what's being spoken of here is that through Abraham and through the nation of Israel and through God's people God's family those in relationship with him God desires to bring his blessing again what what does that mean his relationship relationship with him special relationship with him to every family on earth and through Israel's faithfulness that will be shown to people and they'll come to it but they don't they're not faithful when you read the old testament the kings and the chronicles and Samuel and the prophets Israel just breaks it again and again and again and again and Yahweh keeps forgiving them and coming back to them and you know bringing judgment on them and then, and then delivering them and he's, he's always bringing them back to this idea of covenant and ultimately, we see it in Jesus that, that Yahweh has to fulfill both sides of this covenant. Okay, are you with me? Yeah. That was the geeky stuff. Okay, here's some takeaways for today, and then, and then we'll go eat something good. Number one, God is always faithful, always faithful. He's abounding, overflowing in chesed and amet, love, covenant love, and faithfulness. It's a core attribute of his character. He is someone you can count on no matter what. No matter what, it says in Second 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. God can't violate his own nature and character. He remains faithful. And this is hugely important for us. I mean, the way that we live as Christians and our faith, what it's rooted in, it leaves the target of seeing I'm blessed if everything's going perfect in my life. Uh, that means I'm blessed, that means God loves me, but if things are bad, if I get sick or if I lose my job or if something bad happens to me, I get in a car accident and my, now my leg doesn't work or whatever happens in life, then that means I'm not blessed, now something's wrong and I've lost the favor of God and that's not true at all. He can't stop being faithful to you. Yeah, that's good. And so when bad things happen, it doesn't mean that God doesn't favor you or care for you or there. In fact, he's actually with you in the midst of that, still being faithful to you all the time. When you sin, when you fall, when you have a bad week, when you go back to the same medication that you've been taking to get rid of that pain or whatever and you can't stop, whatever it is in life, Yahweh stays faithful because that's who he is. It doesn't mean we're going to have a pain-free life. Quite the contrary. In the questions, in the contradictions, in the delays of life, we know that Yahweh abounds in love and faithfulness. Jesus said in John sixteen thirty three, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you might. Is that what it says? You may, maybe, perhaps. No, it says you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The faithfulness of God is not depicted when everything goes our way. The faithfulness of God is what is, regardless of the circumstances. And that kind of faith can survive storms. That kind of faith works in the rain and the sunshine of life. Deuteronomy 31, six, God tells his people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For Yahweh Elohim, the Lord your God, goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's with us. Beautiful promise. Psalm 145.13, For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord, Yahweh, always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all he does. Right now in our world, so many institutions and things are being shaken and, and, and being broken and, and the confidence that people have in them is being shattered and broken. And guess what? It's not like it's worse now than it ever has been in history. This is how history works. It's cyclical. Empires rise, empires fall. You know, Credit systems rise, they fall. Economies rise, they fall. But God is faithful through every moment. He always keeps his promises. He's always faithful. And I love that because That is a great anchor point for faith. People think faith means you just blindly believe something because you learned it in Sunday school. Incorrect. Faith means you've met someone who is always faithful. So when you find contradictions, you, you say in your brain, it's an apparent contradiction, but I know the character of the person I have trust in. So biblical faith is about faith in the faithfulness of Yahweh even in the midst of the pain that we go through in life and the questions and the contradictions. Man, I could talk about that more, but I'm going to move on. Number two, his faithfulness calls us to be faithful. There was a senator that went and toured the uh, House of the Dying with Mother Teresa and saw the children that were being cared for and just the horrendous circumstances, and he was overwhelmed by the magnitude of the suffering that that she and her her, uh, fellow workers would see every day. And he asked her this question. He said, how can you bear the load without being crushed by this weight of this. And and Mother Teresa said, my dear Senator, I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. So not only does the target of our faith shift, because if God is always faithful, then we don't say, well, when things are good, he's faithful. When things are bad, he's not faithful. No, he's always faithful. But number two, when things are good or bad, I'm also supposed to be faithful, because that's who my father is. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, act like your daddy. Follow your father in heaven, be like him, okay? The, the process of discipleship, the process of spiritual growth is to gaze upon Yahweh's character and then be transformed in your character. As one of my mentors, Pastor Jess Strickland says, God's fidelity creates fidelity in us. His faithfulness helps us become a faithful person. This is why when somebody says, well, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, it's sort of a glib, trite, kind of truish thing. But as Christians, the world even expects that we would act like Christ because, and act like God because that's who our Father is. Does that make sense? So there isn't actually anything wrong with saying, I want to grow more faithful as I pursue Christ and he leads me uh, towards him. Being a faithful person means being a person of amet, of truth, trustworthy. You're promise-keeping. You're faithful to finish the race before you. When we stand before the Lord one day, we want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And third and last today is that Jesus is the final word on God's covenant love. Jesus is the final word on God's covenant love. Jesus' disciple John was a Jew, and he, he knows the story of Moses on the mountain. He knows the story of Yahweh. They, they knew these words. And listen what he says. He says, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Remember, most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. Now, this is in Greek, so it's different words. It's not chesed and emet, but it's unfailing love and faithfulness, or you might see in a different translation, full of grace and truth, but it's the same thing. And John is quoting Exodus 34, and he's bringing these concepts, and he's saying, Jesus, Yahweh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, he also has this exact same character. This is who he is, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. It just happens again and again and again and again. Jesus, John Mark Homer says this, Jesus came to do what Abraham and Israel were supposed to do, but never could. He came to bless the world. All because thousands of years ago, Yahweh made a promise. When Israel failed, Yahweh was faithful. Even before that, when Adam failed, he was faithful. And when you and I failed, God was still faithful to bless and heal and free and save. Jesus takes all our failure, millennia of broken promises, and he drags it to the cross, absorbing it in his death and then breaking its hold over humanity through his resurrection. This is why the writers of the New Testament are constantly quoting from the old because for them the gospel started in Genesis 12, not Matthew 1. Yahweh made a promise and he was faithful to the point of death. God is always faithful. In fact, it's overflowing out of him and his, he's abounding in love and faithfulness, but his love doesn't just mean that he has good feelings towards you. It means he will always be faithful to you because he made that covenant and not only did he make covenant with you, he's also holding up both sides of the agreement in the person of Christ at the cross. So if you bow your head and close your eyes today, I wanna give you an opportunity if you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to, to be in relationship with that God I want to turn my fidelity, my allegiance, my faith, and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't understand all the theological ramifications. Well, I don't either. There's so many in there. But you know what I do trust is I trust the the character of Yahweh. And I know that Yahweh came and he put himself in human form and he gave himself on a cross for my sin and did my end of the bargain and that I can follow him and become his child. And I do that by putting my faith in Christ. If you're here today and you want to make that decision and put your faith in Jesus, we just give an opportunity every Sunday to just take that first step. We don't think that praying a prayer is what makes you a Christian. God does that, that miracle in your heart and spirit and life. But, but it's important to make a, a moment, to mark a moment of decision and say, this is when I decide to follow Jesus and give him my brokenness and give him my shame and give him my agenda and receive him as my Lord and Savior. So if that's you today and you say, Pastor Jake, I'd like to do that, would you just raise your hand so I can see? Anybody here today that would like to make that decision? Thank you. Awesome, 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 awesome. Thank you. Awesome. We're gonna pray this prayer together and then we'll give you another step to take. Let's all pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know I haven't lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your faithful love Thank you for giving yourself as a sacrifice. Thank you for your forgiveness and mercy revealed at the cross. I choose to follow you today. I give you my life and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.